Welcome, everybody, back to KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Today, I am joined by my good friend, famed tennis journalist, Joel Drucker, with Tennis Channel and TennisChannel.com. And, Joel, you made a big splash in social media recently. The news broke of the split between newly minted number one women's player, Naomi Osaka, and her coach. And it prompted you to make some comments with regard to the actual role of the coach in professional tennis. Talk a little bit about why this split prompted you to make some of the comments that you did. Well, I was talking about coaches, period, so both professional tennis and the broader world. I just thought that sometimes the term coach, that people using that is a way to abdicate a certain responsibility for their game. I have no problem, as I pointed out in this little thing I wrote on Facebook, with instruction and getting technical and all kinds of input. But I think sometimes people refer to someone as a coach. It's their way of surrendering their authority and thinking that the tennis coach is a football coach. Bill Belichick will not be a tennis coach, ever. And great players along the lines of Roger Federer, Serena Williams, Pete Sampras, Monica Seles, Steffi Graf, they would never think of someone as their leader that way. And so I just have an issue with people saying, oh, my coach, and this is my, uh, my coaches. And then, and then I see people who call themselves coaches, and I'm not talking about professional coaches, but I'm talking about other coaches. Have they ever watched their student play a match? How can you call yourself a coach if you ever watch your student play at least one entire match, if not three? So I just think there's a little bit of a pretense in this. It was interesting, and as I anticipated, though I didn't know what form was going to take, it kind of lit things up a little bit on Facebook, different people chiming in, people thinking I was decrying coaches, people saying that a coach should be an architect, all this stuff that I think is kind of uh, intriguing. It's pretty clear, Joel, that the role of the professional tennis coach has evolved over time and now we're seeing developmental teams we're seeing physios traveling with players we're seeing strength coaches traveling with players it's really more of an it takes a village kind of an approach uh, with some of these big time players and and as a result the player coach relationship has become somewhat tenuous and you really don't see a lot of long term coach player relationships anymore well it's not as a result that they become tenuous it's not a what you mean because a player I, I, it's not it's not because a player is bringing a physio or a nutritionist is because it's just the, what the dynamic is. And, and I think, for example, I wouldn't call someone my nutrition coach. I would just call them my nutritionist, my dietitian, my physical trainer. And it's funny, and you see the way coaching is seeped into our world in realms beyond sports, that people have creative coaches and life coaches and all this coaching, like they all want to be under the thumb of some guy who's going to tell them what to do instead of saying, hey, they're consultants, they're advisors, they're instructors, they're experts, all fine. But the notion of a coach, is a, there's a surrender aspect to it that I think is almost smack against what the very notion of tennis is. Like one, a player told me once, a very high-ranked player, he said, tennis, coaching, you play tennis so you don't have someone telling you what to do. That's why we play the game. I don't have to, I have a coach doesn't have to tell me I should, I should be a servant volleyer or I should play at the baseline. I'm the player. I'm the quarterback. And do you think that as a result of this, sort of lack of clarity of what the role should be of the coach or the instructor and the player that as you say the players are maybe being you know sort of too reliant upon their coaches for their results and not taking ownership and accountability of their own results I'm not talking about the results I'm talking about their processes I'm talking about how they run their how they run their career 
and how they run their game. I mean, I saw one, some, some wrote about how a coach says, uh, a coach says he's going to make the decisions. The coach isn't the one making the decisions. The coach isn't the one playing the 15-30 point. And I know that's true in football, but the coach shapes the football team. The coach decides that the draft pick who played quarterback might be better off playing wide receiver. That doesn't happen in tennis. That's one of the reasons why we play tennis. We play tennis because we get to be the team owner and the head coach and the quarterback and the linebacker. So let's be clear about that so there's some ownership. I think the thing is that the players, by abdicating some responsibility, that's going to bite them when they play their matches because they're not going to have the ability to cope appropriately when it comes to problem solving. That's the great thing about it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make my case which I, about on-court coaching and policing. it. I, I'm not saying there shouldn't be instructors and advisors and people that comprise a player's team. I have no problem with that. The more the merrier. I mean, actually, I think, I think the center of knowledge might well be the trainer and the physio because that's the thing the player knows less about. A player knows a lot less about nutrition and keeping their body strong than they know about how to play tennis, at least in theory. And I think, of course, of, of course I think uh, uh, some of these brilliant minds who come around tennis are valuable and they add things to the player. But I just think that the, the, the deployment of the language, I think, is kind of curious. Maybe, for all we know, maybe Osaka realizes, like, wait a second, what's this guy telling me to do? He's telling me to, uh, to move forward, to, hit, to keep the ball in play. Do I need someone to tell me that? When we look at some of the player-coach relationships, and, and, and there have been some very different ones that have been successful or, to some extent, unsuccessful for different reasons. Let's look at, for instance, Andy Murray and Yvonne Lendl, or Novak Djokovic and, and Boris Becker, and maybe look at Federer and, and Stefan Edberg and Paul Anacone, where I'm going to rest, Paul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right now with this Federer. Edberg thing. Okay. When Federer started working with Edberg, someone said to me, oh, you think Edberg, because he was a great volleyer, is telling Federer to come to net more? And I said, number one, I never met a coach tell a player to come to net less. <laughs> right, good point. Number two, coaching is not autobiography. And for all I know, Edberg might have been telling Federer about his forehand. And we don't know. For all, and, and some said, well, if Edberg didn't have a very good forehand, that's not the point. He studied a great number of forehands. Who knows? And more importantly, I think Federer liked having Edberg around him. And I think the fetishization of coaches, you know, we know that there are others who are helping Andy Murray thrive, his, his fitness team and Jazz Green and other people. And I, I get the role of the, of the coach, but I don't know what Edberg, and I love Stefan Edberg, he's great. I'm just talking tennis here, as Pontesica would say. What did Edberg tell Roger Federer that Paul Anacone or Tony Roach hadn't already told him? You think they didn't tell him to come to Edmore? You think they didn't tell him that he should maybe chip in charge? I mean, so I just think there's a little, there's a tendency to fetishize this because it's so compelling. You know, oh, the famous player matches the favorite player, and here's the picture of him when he ball boyed for him 20 years ago. But do you think when you look at some of these relationships on paper, Joel, that you can either look at it and go, well, I think that this would work and it makes sense because of X, Y, and Z. Let's say with Lendl and Murray, we knew that with Andy Murray, he really needed to be in the room with someone that he could respect at a very high level who had done things that he had yet to accomplish. And it seemed like Lendl hit the mark with Murray. Would you say that that would be an example of something that really made sense? It, it, it seemed to be the case, and I was surprised. I, didn't, I was a little curious about the Becker-Djokovic, and that worked. Whatever that means to work, I guess if we just look at sheer results, we say then it works. So do the ones that don't yield slams, do they, do they not work, or do they work? How do we know? I mean, you know, how do we know, how do we know what that really means? I think, um, 
I think Lendl absolutely helped Murray. I think mostly by his presence. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Murray was aware before he ever met Ivan Lendl that he should do more with his forehand. Well, no question about that. I think it was more of just a mentality as to sort of how to remain composed in the midst of trying situations. Which... But was that, was that a presence or words? I mean, that, and some of the stuff, look, if, I could, if, if you can afford it, you might as well have it and, and be able to have some, spend some time with someone as brilliant as Yvonne Lendl. But part of me also thinks at the pro level, some of this stuff is a little bit like the Wizard of Oz telling the scarecrow he has a brain. Ultimately, then, Joel, you go on to Facebook to make a point that you want what to be taken away from that. Ultimately, I want people to under, I want people to take responsibility for their own tennis games, and I'm not just talking about the pros. I'm also talking about recreational people. I mean, you know, you're you're an excellent instructor, Andy. You've worked with teams. Yes, I'll call you. I'll call you an instructor who provides um, strategic consulting for my league team. I'm not going to call you a coach of my league team. Sorry, you're not coaching my league team. I'm okay with that. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be my offensive coordinator. I, I, I want the player to be the head coach. You know, I have friends who take in a lot of input. They take lessons. They go to clinics. Then, they, worst of all, they talk with each other, and they swap data around like kids talking in the street. And, and they think, oh, I got a, I've got a new coach now. Coach, really? Have him watch you play three full matches before he can call, yourself, call himself your coach. Guys at the club watches me play three games and miss two volleys. You're my coach? I don't think so. So ultimately what you're looking for from a tennis player is to be Peyton Manning, to be Tom Brady, Drew Brees, to be Aaron Rodgers, the guy that he's got the guidance, he's got the team around him putting a framework in place, but ultimately this is the guy that makes this whole thing tick, and that's what a tennis player needs to be. But not even football. Not even football. But I, don't, I, I, like, I love those football things because those are neat players, but I want the player to understand that he's Bob Kraft. Okay, he's the owner of the whole deal. I mean, because Tom Brady has this whole Belichick thing, and Belichick is creating the team and putting the parts in places. Well, guess what? In tennis, you don't have 21 of the people. Most you have one. So would it be safe to say then, as far as circling back to where we started, that Naomi Osaka is in effect coming of age in a way that you would, you know, sort of endorse as taking charge of her own career? That's right. She's taking her destiny in her control. Now, I don't know. I, I think it, it's all kind of, we'll never know exactly quite what happened, and it is almost a little remarkable that this woman who was 72 in the world just before last year's Australian Open has won two majors and become number of the world would part ways with someone who's been part of her team. There are lots of reasons for that, and at the pro level, there are many reasons why players part way with the person who they identify as their coach. Many reasons for that. And some of it has to do with there's, there's money, there's credit. For example, I know recently the WCA has been letting players, uh, playing coaches be interviewed. They've arranged specific press conferences, and as a writer, I've gained things from them. I don't know. If I was a player, I might say to my coach, I'm going to pay you well. You're going to work with me. I don't want you doing any interviews. There's nothing, I, I don't need you to be my press secretary. Now, I'll have to take more responsibility for answering things in press conferences, but I don't need you to be my press secretary and kind of like, you know, what reinforcing my message through occasional briefings after my matches. My guest today on KickServeRadio.com is the one and only Joel Drucker, who is, if nothing less, at least very thought-provoking in everything uh, that he does on air and by use of the pen. Joel, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. I look forward to our rematch out in Indian Wells this year, whether it be singles or doubles, and uh, we always have fun when we get together out there in the desert. Terrific, Andy. Love hanging out with you and talking about the tennis and uh, getting some balls and 
exchanging some ideas. Always great stuff, Joel. Thanks so much for joining us today on kickserveradio.com. You're welcome.